pterodactyl thrill and inspiring your trumpet journey, here's your host, James Newcomb. Hello, welcome to the show. This is James Newcomb, and I am delighted that you have pressed play on today's episode and chose to spend just a little bit of your valuable time listening to the show. You'll hear a little bit of traffic and a little bit of background noise. I am walking from uh, my adopted office, which is the Udam Coffee Shop here in Eco Park of Vietnam, and I'm walking back to my apartment, just taking care of some business, and I'm actually rather excited because this is my third to last day in Vietnam. If you've followed this show for any length of time, you know that I've been splitting time between Virginia Beach and Vietnam for the last three years. And now my wife's visa is finally done. Everything is finally done. The flights are booked and uh, we're heading to uh, the United States in just a few days. So I'm excited. I was thinking about Well, I was looking at the stuff that I'm going to be packing in my suitcases, and I saw my old cornet that I have kept here, decided to keep just my cornet here just so I can keep my chops in shape. Anyway, my cornet is really, really tarnished. I don't have any silver polish here, and I don't, there's no Walmart, so you don't just go to the store and uh, pick up silver polish at at your friendly, uh, (laughs) you know, silver polish store. Uh, I, I don't, I'm sure that they sell it somewhere, but I just don't know where it is. And so as a result, my horn is really tarnished. Horn is ta- uh, tarnished, and when I get home, uh, I'm going to be getting some silver polish at the Home Depot, putting it on there, and getting it looking nice, the way it's supposed to look. Get that silver patina looking, you know, brand new, just the way a good polish will do. And the thing about a, a good, high-quality polish for an instrument or your fine china or whatever it is, is that polish has a little bit of an irritant in it. Uh, and it's through that irritant that breaks up the, the nastiness. It's the irritant that is able to get the, the, the junk, the tarnish off of the, of the, of the silver and then allow the, the nicer elements of the polish to do what it does best, which is to get that silver looking really, really pretty. But it's not going to happen without the irritant inside of the polish. Whether it's uh, the the liquid polish or it's one of those silver polishing cloths, it's going to have that very mild irritant. And it put me in mind of how we have so many irritants in our lives, so many things that just get under our skin. They irritate us. They annoy us. Sometimes they just flat out make us angry. And it's through those things that we grow. It's through the trials of life that we experience real growth in our lives, our careers. Uh, it, it's through the, the challenging times of learning to play the trumpet, for example, that we really get good at trumpet. We persevere through these difficult times. And at, when we finally get through the other side of the challenge that we're going through, we finally break through, then we can appreciate uh, the good times. Then once we get our, the muscles in our lips conditioned the way that they need to be, or, or, or our, the dexterity in our fingers going the way that, that, that it should be going, 
then we enjoy it. We can stand in front of an audience. We go through the, the nerves that are always a part of being a performer. We go through those difficult times. We fall on our face, but we get up and we just persevere. And then we get to a point where it's fun. It's enjoyable. But we're not going to get to that point if we can't suffer through the irritants, the things that just get under our skin, that frustrate us, discourage us sometimes. So that is my word of wisdom for you today. Don't stress out over the irritants. There's an old saying that I heard years and years ago. If you can't stand the rub, how are you ever going to get polished? So I'm just going to leave it at that. Moralizing aside, we've got a great show for you today. I'm bringing back onto the show Sergei Nakaryakov. This is an interview that I published uh, in March, February or March of 2020. And I was listening to it just the other day, and I thought, this is a great interview, great story. And of course, obviously, he's a very, one of the best trumpeters that we know of. Very, very friendly person. Had a really nice chat, and you're going to enjoy it. All right. Well, there's not much that I can say to introduce Sergei Nakaryakov. I'm sure that you are well familiar with him. He's, he, he makes the impossible possible with his playing, his stunning virtuosity. It's just a delight to uh, be able to partake of his artistry as a spectator. And it was uh, even more of a delight to put a personality with the great playing that I've enjoyed for many, many years, and I believe that you will enjoy the same experience. Oh, by the way, let me let you know that uh, because of he does have a bit of an accent, and because of the audio quality, there were a few names that we mentioned that you might have a hard time distinguishing, And but they, they, these people are definitely worth checking out, and I have all of the links that you'll need for the the resources and the names that we discuss during the interview uh, on the page that I have set up for this podcast episode, you can go to my website. It is jamesnewcomb.io slash Sergey. That's spelled S-E-R-G-E-I. And it's just jamesnewcomb.io. It's not .com. It's jamesnewcomb.io slash Sergey. S-E-R-G-E-I. Check out all the, uh, the, the people that we mentioned. We have YouTube videos of the great Timothy Dokshitzer playing some just music that only he can play. And um, go check it out. jamesnewcomb.io slash Sergey. And here is our chat. Sergey, why don't we just start out? I like to know... What got you interested in the trumpet in the first place, man? Uh, this was a recording by Timofey Dokshitzer that my sister brought from Moscow. Back then we lived in uh, Russia, in Gorky, another city. Now this city is called Nizhny Novgorod. And uh, back then there was nothing in the shops. So not even recordings uh, uh, from Melodia. It was really hard to find. So my sister found these two um, LPs by Timofey Dokshutze, mm. one with uh, organ prelude by Bach, mm-hmm. and another one um, a recording with the wind band with Carnival of Venice, uh, concert pieces by Brandt, and all these things. 
and I was totally uh, overwhelmed and musically shocked, if I may say so. <laughs> musically shocked. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, especially after listening to one particular Bach prelude in E flat minor, uh -huh. and um, this put me to tears, really. Really. And uh, and um, I just want uh, I just realized that th this is my dream. Really. Wow. I tried the trumpet a little bit earlier, but I didn't know what, what to do with it. So this particular recording made me want to play classical trumpet. So Dokshitzer was your main influence? He was my inspiration, yes. And he, he's, uh, he actually, he's one of very, very rare trumpet players that I would listen, uh, classical ones, that I would listen just for pleasure. So Dokshitzer was your main influence uh, when you first got started? Like when you're first listening to him, what was it about his playing or his showmanship, his presence that just stuck out to you? Do you remember? Uh, his very honest music making. And uh, I could always feel that I couldn't probably back then describe it. But it, it got into my heart immediately. And uh, now if to analyze his, uh, his playing, I think for him, music making was primary, the primary thing before actually playing trumpet. At least this is how it felt, and I think that's the, the most important, because after all, uh, an instrument doesn't matter which one is just an instrument, it's a tool for expression. Well, it seems to me like every trumpet player says that, that they're a musician first and a trumpet player second. And Ideally. Yes, that's what I mean. Is they they as a final result. They're they're idealists, but sometimes you know they they uh, it doesn't always translate into reality because this person Dokshitzer actually lived out this ideal of being a musician and using the trumpet as a simple tool to make music. I can also say that he was probably the. Uh, if I may say, the most prominent uh, romantic on a trumpet. And he has made some legendary recordings. Did you ever get to meet him? Yes, I met him uh, several times in my life. Unfortunately, I never heard him playing live. At some point, my father wanted me to take lessons from him, but somehow it didn't happen. But I met him for the first time when I was 10. I played for him. It was possible, I don't know how, but uh, I remember I played for him uh, at his apartment. My father and I, we came to, to visit him in Moscow and I played for him something. And uh, he, he gave some advices and uh, uh, offered his uh, LP, signed it for me. <laughs> do you still have it? Uh, somewhere I do, yes. <laughs> and uh, years later, he gave me another one. <laughs> <laughs> then actually many years passed and I was already living in, here in France. And I came to Lithuania, to Vilnius, with concerts, and he came to the rehearsal because he was friends with uh, uh, this uh, conductor from Lithuania, Saulus Sundetskis, with whom we played a lot. And uh, I remember how nervous I was when I saw Dokshitzer sitting there. But um, then I had a chance to, to talk to him a little bit. Yeah, we had a dinner together. We had... Uh, interesting conversation about arrangements of course because he has done so many so 
Yes, it was very memorable. How old were you at this time? I was probably 20 or something like that. What was his feedback on your playing at that time? I think in general he liked it. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, I can't recall what exactly he said. Uh, but um, he came to my concert when I played Tchaikovsky's Rococo Variations. And then we had some discussions about arrangements. Uh, he wasn't very convinced about some ideas that my father had. But again, this is such a personal thing. So He, he wasn't convinced of your father's ideas? Yes, of some ideas. I remember actually that... It seems to me that for him, St. Sal's introduction in Ronde Catericioso wasn't convincing as the idea, but he hasn't heard it. And it turned out that actually it did fit. Bokshitzer made himself uh, a huge amount of uh, arrangements. And uh, some of them I play myself. And, and, and many trumpet players around the world. And I have to admit that uh, something from his repertoire I don't play because I think that after his interpretation, it's just really hard to add something because it's so amazing. You can't improve on it. Well, it's, of course, it's always possible to play something differently, but uh, there is one in particular, which is uh, his version of this uh, Glier concerto for coloratura soprano. I'm sorry, what's the composer's name again? Reinhold Glier, concerto for coloratura soprano. When you started playing trumpet, do you remember the first sound that you made? What did it sound? What did it sound like? Terrible. Okay. Ter terrible, like with everyone else. Right. And uh, it gradually got better. Um, and I was listening to Doctor's recordings. I was taking lessons back then from this um, first trumpet from the local Philharmonic Orchestra, who himself was Doctor's pupil years before, and. Um, yes, I was just trying to imitate. So you're just trying to imitate uh, Mr. Dokshitzer and... And this, and this trumpet player, Pavel Grinko, yes. When did you start to get good at it? Well, I don't know what good is, but um, I, got, I got better quite fast. And uh, uh, so I started when I was nine. And when I was 10, I played Baratunyan with the orchestra. And then uh, I started to work on... Haydn Trumpet Concerto and Carnival of Venice and even Jolibet Concertino. Still before 11 years old, I was already practicing these things. 
So you played the Artunian at age nine? No, at age 10. At age oh, nine, 10. I started to play. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so age nine, he, he started to play and you sounded horrible. Yes. Yes, and by the age of 10, you were playing the Artunian with an orchestra. Yeah, correct. So that's a pretty fast advancement by most standards. I think so. But um, there I have to say that when I started to play trumpet, I already knew how to read the music because three years before that I was practicing piano. So for me, reading just one line was quite easy. Was, uh, and this helped a lot, I have to say. So wh when did you know that you wanted to make trumpet your career? I wasn't really, I don't know, I didn't think of career or becoming famous. I just wanted to be good at and I had a goal to, to, to play. Probably back then I was thinking uh, that I wanted to play like Timofey Dakritze. So when I started to have my first uh, performances and uh, my father realized that uh, my father, who was a piano teacher himself, and he was practicing with me at home twice a day for many, many, many years. So at some point he realized that uh, I get a lot of attention and that uh, all the musicians around give me a lot of compliments and he, he could see the reaction of the audience. So he believed in it somehow. And then at some point he quit his job just to be with me more, to be with me more, yes. Were you still in the, in the, the USSR at this time? Yes. Okay. Uh, we left for Israel. We uh, emigrated in uh, 1991, a few few months before Soviet Union. Uh, well, was <laughs> over. And so when I was 10, 11, I started to perform. And at 12, I played with Vladimir Skivakov, um, one of major uh, Russian musicians, a violinist and uh, conductor. Uh, played with his orchestra, Moscow Virtuosi, and played in Moscow, St. Petersburg, appeared on television, and he took me to his festival to France, and uh, Dmitry Sitkovetsky, American violinist and conductor, took me to his festival to Finland. So those were my f first two trips. Actually, Finland first and France after. France to, to Spivakov's festival. Um, that was in 1990, I was 13. So my first two trips to the, so to say, capitalist world. And Spivakov gave me a, a good trumpet as a gift. It was uh, because I, this was a major problem back then to have a good instrument. It was absolutely impossible to get. In the USSR? In the USSR. Right. Yeah. Because the instruments provided by the schools were a very old um, instruments made uh, in the GDR or Czech Republic, really terrible quality. And eventually I got some help. A group of people who had their video recording business uh, collected some money for my Jupiter, which was already uh, a lot better. When I think of it, it's actually quite sad, but I'm uh, very, very grateful to those who helped me. And then uh, Spivakov, um, about a year later, he gave me this Getsin Eterna that I played for quite a while and I even made my first recordings with it. Hmm. What was the name of your first recording? Trumpet Works. Trumpet Works. And what year was that? Probably Works, they meant by uh, uh, pieces for trumpet. Right. Not that trumpet works or doesn't work, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I think of it, I think it's a funny part. Well, the trumpet works, it's sometimes the player doesn't work, right? <laughs> well, I try to make it work. I want to know, and, and please forgive me because I know that you're a humble person, but uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just going to come right out and say I'm a fanboy because I Thank love you. what you do, and um, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one that says that you, know, you do things on the trumpet that, that, are, that are impossible. Of course, they're possible, and I, I want to dig into a little bit about what makes it possible, but it's, it's a very, very high standard. It's a very high standard. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the one to give you the praise that you deserve because I know that you're not going to do it. Thank you. And, and I want to get into the process of, like, when did, what, what was the first piece of music that was, like, beyond the Artunian, the Haydn, the Carnival of Venice, the standards of the trumpet repertoire that you have to be a good player to play, but what was the first thing that was beyond that? And you said, I, just, I want to stretch myself, I want to challenge myself. I think uh, my father somehow pushed me to, to try more things because I didn't want to play C trumpet because when I tried it, I felt uncomfortable. So, which means that I didn't play much of the, uh, this 20th century, let's say, French repertoire. Okay. Some of it I did, like Jolivet Concertino actually recorded it, but with a B-flat using a, a Soviet score, which was published in B-flat because, well, back then, there was no other instruments in Soviet Union, in Tomasi also. Right. So I had somehow to expand my repertoire in order not to play the same things over and over. And my father just started to, to think and, about new ideas. And the, the first recording with arrangements was a Carmen Fantasy. This was my third, my third album. And the first piece of the Carmen Fantasy, which was actually arranged not by my father, but by the pianist with whom I, um, I made this album, Alexander Markovich, um, a really uh, fantastic pianist, musician, a genius, I'd say. Mm -hmm. was, uh, we were very close friends. He passed away, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So he arranged this violin part for me. And this was a big challenge, of course. And on the same album, my father um, um, arranged, uh, for, for this album, he arranged the Spanish dance by Defaya and uh, Tchaikovsky's Vals Scherzo. So those three pieces really gave me, um, among the arranged pieces, gave me, of course, a lot of uh, trouble. And of course, there was Moto Perpetuo, but that's a separate story. Obviously, all started from a Rafael Mendes recording, and well, yeah, that made me suffer a lot. I had to to practice bar by bar and put things together. My father taught me how to practice this actually, and uh, later I used the same way of practicing to prepare the Wigman Concerto that I have played quite a lot recently. I'm sorry, what, what was that last concerto you mentioned? Jörg Wigman. It's a German composer and clarinet player, contemporary composer who wrote a very, very, very difficult piece for me um, that I performed quite often. I played it uh, the last time at the ITG in Miami. Is it still difficult for you to play? Oh, it's very challenging, yes. Wow. Uh, well, difficult. It's difficult to play, how shall I say, uh, it depends what your standards are. Right. Because there are so many notes and so many... Uh, 
possibilities to to miss or to be not centered that yes it is difficult when you are gonna start practicing this for the first time what is your process for like what's going on in your mind this is what i need to do how do i how do you prepare to get something like that very very challenging piece up to the standard that you want where you're comfortable performing it in public well, what was easier with Monte Perpetuo is that I knew how it should sound. Okay. So this was already in my ears, right. in a way. Something to look forward to. With a, with a Widman concerto, I didn't know how it would sound because nobody ever played it before. I got the score in which I couldn't understand anything at all, I have to admit. Uh, I don't have any uh, conducting skills anyway. And um, and if you listen to the piece, you'll understand that I, it was okay that I didn't understand anything. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw that it was black. And <laughs> it looked really scary. And then I have to say one thing about that Whitman piece, that the version I play is the second version of it. Because in the first, it was a piece um, that was consisting of only one line, uh, 15 minutes long. And then I called the composer and I asked, well, are you, is it a joke? Are you kidding? And he said, yes, but you can play everything. I say, "Your thank you so much. But no, <laughs> but this is uh, actually impossible. I told him because if the mouthpiece is on the lips for such a long time, well, eventually, no matter how little you, you press on the lips, but eventually the blood doesn't come in. The version is, this is his second version, the version that I play <clears throat> and that I have recorded. And the first line is only two minutes. So thank you very much, Jörg. The first line is only two minutes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, only. It's, it's long enough, I think, but <laughs> because there are some other long lines uh, in the piece as well. And uh, this is uh, really difficult, not only for the solos, but uh, really crazy hard for the orchestra also. Mm because they all play really fast. Mm. So it's an exciting piece to play, and the audience uh, likes it every time. Well, let's hope so with all the work that you put into it. When you're playing something like that, what do you want the audience to take away from your performance of a piece like that? Very, very technically difficult. Do you want the audience to be like, wow, that was amazing. Look at that. Look how fast his fingers go. Look how fast you, know, you can tongue so fast. I mean, what... I'm just curious, what do you want the audience to come away with? Well, with this particular piece, I just know what I feel when I play it. For me, I don't really think in general about pleasing the audience. I sort of know that they, they want to enjoy the music, definitely, and to have a good time. And, and I, get, I guess uh, get inspired. I would think of these things, but not to go like look at the fingers or the lips or high tones or low or, or high or fast or I don't know. I don't think this way. <clears throat> but with this particular piece, it's a very strong adrenaline rush in a way. For you? I think for the listener as well. Okay. It has to be. And um, because it's a very fast paced piece, which in a way uh, uh, often sounds like a a very uh, crazy contemporary jazz improvisation. I think the listener 
would feel something like that. It's a very complex and uh, piece with uh, interesting harmonies. And even if played twice slower, it's still interesting. Have you ever had a piece of music that you wanted to play or that you set out to play and you just had the, f- the very first practice session with it and you said, this is, I, I, I can't do this. Have you ever had an experience like that? I definitely had more than once, but to tell you which piece exactly would be hard for me to tell. Um, what I can tell you is that there was arrangements that I tried and even on stage and then I had to say to myself that no, it doesn't work. I have to also say that my father has arranged uh, the E minor, the, the famous Mendelssohn violin concerto. Mm-hmm. I practiced it at home and then I understood that it wasn't a good idea because musically it would have been too much of a compromise. What would you have to compromise? Well, the music itself, the music by Mendelssohn, because uh, very long lines and uh, well, of course, my father wanted me to have rests sometimes, so he would give something from the solo part to the orchestra and there was a little bit too much of it because in the second movement for instance uh, there are very very long lines and then you obviously compromise the range because the violin plays a lot higher so these sort of things but his d minor concerto the his piece that mendelssohn wrote when he was 13 years old this piece actually works for trumpet so so you you won't necessarily not do it because you can't play it you won't do it because to do so would compromise the integrity of the original composition? I could play the arrangement that my father wrote, not the violin part. You, could, you, you can't play the violin part because of the range? No, and no, I could not. The violinists, they have the luxury of breathing while they play, things like that. Yes, but that's the breathing is a, is a separate topic because uh, on any instruments, musicians must breathe appropriately. But this is something else. Yes. So, yes, the E minor concerto, not going to happen. Not by me. Do you think that there's someone that could do it? I don't know. Okay. If they don't try, they don't know. (laughs) Well, you've tried it, and we know. Well, I tried my father's arrangement. Maybe somebody uh, would maybe try to do it with a higher pitch uh, instrument. I think the level of trumpet playing in general, it, of course, um, uh, advances. And uh, nowadays I see kids all over the world, you know, very young playing Carnival of Venice all the time. So often that, well, this is exactly what I was doing when I was a kid. But now I want to ask sometimes, come on, play something else. So it seems like every kid is playing the Carnival of Venice. Well, maybe. Well, I mean, more, more than when you were a kid. No, definitely. Who are some of the young players that have caught your eye recently? Well, young, uh, young, what do you mean by young? Like 11 or 20? Because 20 now is also young for me. Yes, and as for me, I think you and I are about the same age. I'm 42. I'm 43. Mm. So, um, like Floris Onstvedder, who, who introduced the two of us. He's a very talented uh, young man. He's very musical. I think he has a, uh, he's a brilliant trumpet player. I think he has a huge potential. So um, already now, he has done many wonderful things, uh, some beautiful recordings that I heard from him. So yes, I'm definitely following what he's doing. Any, any anybody else like his age, maybe a few years younger, that has caught your eyes? Like, wow, this person is. We're going to be hearing this name ten years from now. 
Well, there is this um, young French trumpet player, mm-hmm. Lucien, Lucien Renaud Arvary. Um, she already made her first uh, recordings. Uh, she does both classical and jazz, and it seems that she has, she kind of moves more towards jazz, which definitely she has the right to do. Uh, she sounds wonderful. If I speak about her classical play, if she would give it, let's say, more time, she could do a lot, a lot more than she has done already. This is my personal opinion, but I guess it's impossible to do everything. So there I say, there, um, what I say is about the choice of repertoire, for instance, what she has been playing. She's um, really musical, natural, and uh, yeah, very interesting to follow. And her playing jazz, I'm not a jazz player, but uh, she sounds great. Uh, I'm sure I forgot some fantastic uh, young talents, but it, it's, it's hard to, to remember all. I just would like to say that um, without a proper guidance, a young trumpet player without a proper musical guidance would get stuck with the just with our very small musical uh, repertoire or at best with some extra show pieces to go with it and this is just too little so then the way it's either to play contemporary music which some players choose which is definitely interesting uh, there are some players who just by principle never play arrangements like there is by the way talking about talents um, a little bit still younger than me, there is David Guerrier, a fantastic uh, French trumpet player, but also a horn player who equally well plays trumpet and horn. His principle is that he always plays, from what I know, he always plays original repertoire and rather than making an arrangement, he learns a new instrument. So he also plays trombone, violin, and then all sorts of uh, uh, other instruments which are not necessarily uh, used anymore right now, so he would dig in for some original interesting mm-hmm. stuff. So this is his way. But I think uh, as trumpet players, we have to to look further than our little, you know. Well, it, because it's it's still a, a new instrument by other standards, like the piano and the violin. Of course, you are totally right. Yes. So so do you think that like the limited repertoire is maybe a little bit of uh, kind of holding it back? Of course. Okay. Because the history of modern trumpet playing is indeed, as you said, is much, much um, uh, shorter. And uh, the great composers such as, I don't know, Schumann, Brahms, and Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff never never wrote for us. They didn't have, they didn't have, they would have if the trumpet was as prominent as the violin and piano of the time. Yes, I guess. But like the orchestra was like, Every every person had an orchestra, or every town had an orchestra. The rock band is like that's how you make music. If you want to make music, then you make then you form a band or country band or rock band or whatever. That's sort of what the orchestra was back in the eighteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds. We don't the trumpet players don't have that benefit of being uh, around during that era of history. And what also we do lack in our repertoire is chamber music. Because mm. brass quintets, brass ensembles, this is a separate thing. But again, French horn got so much more luck there. There, I have to say that I'm uh, really lucky to play flugelhorn because that expanded my repertoire a lot. 
it at least it doubled it because I can play almost any piece written for French horn. It is possible. And of course, it's not the same sound. Probably some French horn players wouldn't like to hear this from me, uh, that I kind of steal their repertoire. I had a, once a very funny conversation with one um, uh, lady, uh, one uh, a manager of an orchestra, who was an ex-horn um, player, and um, I was going to perform a Mozart a horn concerto, and she told me, yes, but you're stealing our repertoire. And, and she wasn't quite uh, happy about it, from what I understood. And then I told her, well, I'm not stealing it. Uh, after I play, you, you still have <laughs> your horn concerto. Exactly. It's not like they can't play it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and then nobody is forcing the listener to come to my concerts or to anybody, anybody's concerts, actually. I think it's fair. Well, I, I know for a fact that no French horn players listen to this show. How do you practice? Someone said something about you have some sort of practice routine of nine minutes on, six minutes off. Yeah, this is, uh, this is how I was practicing about uh, 15, 20 years ago. My father has invented this for me and tried to organize my practicing. Because at some point I had a lot of uh, issues with my embouchure. Because there was a period that was around 94, 95, 96, for another at least five, six, seven years afterwards, I had the real issues with endurance. Why? Because at some point I just overplayed and I had too much um, to work on. I wasn't dis disciplined enough and I was too eager to try to play high tones, not the way I should. I was in trouble because I still had to play concerts and, uh, sorry to say, earn money also. I had to be very, very careful with my practicing and really plan it carefully. And uh, this was the main reason when I was fighting with my father because I didn't have enough patience to have long enough breaks. So finally I started to play with a timer. So nine minutes on, six minutes off. Well, well maybe it was 12 and 7, I don't remember. Okay. How long did you have that r routine? No, for several years. Okay. Several years. Also, uh, when I was uh, younger, I practiced twice a day till I realized that it's uh, not the best for me because I needed a longer break in between my practice sessions. So I rather, I rather decided to play longer, but in one time, which uh, after many years resulted in the same amount of time as one practice session before, but only once per day which means that I don't practice long, but I have um, much shorter breaks. I don't do many breaks now during practice sessions because, um, well, during recitals or rehearsals, there are not often situations when I can rest when I want. So I have to be ready for some intense playing. Basically, now it's more about short distance run than long distance somehow. More of a sprint than a marathon. Yeah, I would say so. And both are important. But with a marathon, you can practice a lot more things, which is definitely more useful for expanding a repertoire, for instance. But if I prepare for a concert, the sprint is what I need because this is how recital functions. You depend on this, I don't know, 50 or 100 people behind you and the conductor. So you cannot dictate your rules to the others. Would you mind describing a practice session in, with, with this sprint mindset? 
Well, I start obviously with the warm-up, not very long. But there I have to say that I need now days more time to warm up than before. Probably the uh, muscle quality with years changes naturally. So in a way, I feel maybe a little better with range and endurance. But flexibility needs a little more time to, to get going. Um, so a short warm-up and then immediately work on my repertoire. How short of a warm warm-up? It depends on the day. Not more than 10 minutes for sure. Mm-hmm. Five. Just maybe some long tones and some... No, never long tones. No, never long tones, really. Um, <clears throat> Timofey Dokshitzer, um, when he was younger, he was promoting it. And later, he was saying that it, uh, it, um, it doesn't have a good impact on the flexibility. I cannot say that long tones are bad, but they're not good, at least for me. And uh, I wouldn't, I don't know, I would rather spend this time and this energy for something else rather than playing long tones. I'd rather do more flexibilities than long tones. That's interesting. It's very, very interesting to hear that perspective. I don't know if it's correct or not, but this is how I do. I remember once I had an, um, a masterclass, open masterclass in front of the audience uh, in Japan at the Pacific Music Festival. <clears throat> and in the hall, there was uh, several colleagues of mine. One of them was uh, Mark Inui, a fantastic uh, trumpet player yes. from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Some other players uh, from other major American orchestras. And, and they came to me backstage afterwards and said, yes, and said, yes but you you say that you don't do long tones and that... But this is our bread. I said, yes, but I talk from a pers- perspective of my own. I only share what I know myself. I cannot promote something that I don't do. That's that's fair. And that's uh, coming from a place of integrity. You're not going to pr- uh, recommend that someone do something that you don't personally don't do. If somebody asks me, so let's say, uh, I want to play long tones, I say, well, maybe in that case, it's better to get advice from somebody who actually gets better with doing it. I think that makes sense. And then it depends <clears throat> what the goal is. You work on pure endurance, yes. There are specialists, and my colleagues, who work on that a lot. High range and really kind of uh, uh, bodybuilding in the ambushore. And the first person that comes into my mind is my colleague Otto Zalter and who practices uh, eight hours per day, no matter how he feels. And uh, he practices Caruso for hours and hours. His ambassador is like, a, I don't know, like a stone. He can play Brandenburg Concerto all day long. So if somebody wants that, Otto knows how to do that. And he can, defini- he can definitely teach how to do that, by the way. What you do isn't always the best thing for someone else to do. Def- I'm very sure about it. As my father would say, Uh, who taught me how to practice and there is no universal medication for everybody it's a very personal thing and the most difficult is to find what fits you exactly but for that you need to know which direction you want to to go what did your father teach you about practice efficiency discipline um, how to practice uh, long lines principles of how to put difficult things together things like that and how do you go about doing that very short in a very short way to explain, uh, if you have some very, very difficult line to play, split it into short parts, learn each short part separately, then put them together. Not all together at the same time, but, but just by two, then by three, and so on. But not necessarily 
uh, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, but it would be one, two, two, three, three, four, then one, two, three, two, three, four, something like that. This was quite short, wasn't it? <laughs> well, that, that's short and sweet. That was a very efficient and very disciplined answer, I have to say. Have you ever missed a note? Like, have you ever really botched a performance? Oh, yes, all the time. Really? All the time. Oh, yes. Well, I haven't heard it. Things happen. But I haven't heard every performance. Well, then this would be boring because still I often play similar pieces. So even though my repertoire is uh, somewhat uh, different from what others do. Personally, I wouldn't want to listen to so much brass playing. What, do you, what, what other music do you listen to to stay interested in music? Classical, obviously, but a lot, a lot of jazz. Mm. And I listen perhaps to more jazz than classical. For me, uh, my real interest in jazz came from Miles Davis. And I remember my first impression on his playing when I first heard his recording. I remember it was a Bugs groove. But back then, I didn't know anything about what it was all about. So I heard, hmm, somebody who doesn't play clean and doesn't even bother to, to use the water key. <laughs> so, and then somebody, we still lived in Soviet Union back then. And then somebody brought from America uh, two albums from Miles, uh, Tutu and Amandla from 80s. I remember it was very funny, actually. I listened to those. I thought, hmm, I'm not supposed to like it because... Well, I'm a classical musician, so and this is all wrong. But somehow I got hooked like a drug, you know. And then I listened to it more and more. And then in 91, when Miles Davis uh, passed away, there was a lot of his music on the radio. But then we already lived in Israel. And then I was uh, recording on tapes from the radio his, uh, his music. And then through his music, I... Uh, we, um, um, I learned about other musicians with whom he played. So through Miles Davis, uh, I discovered a lot of other great uh, musicians and yeah, albums. It's different than the paradigm that you're used to, the, from the classical paradigm. Got you exposed to different ideas, different perspectives, musical experiences. Uh, so, so maybe I misunderstand different in, in, in what... In well, what I way. mean, it just expanded your perspective of what you can do with music. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And uh, jazz is my inspiration. I don't play it, uh, even though um, I played with jazz musicians, but I, I cannot improvise, so I, I cannot be called a jazz player. Can you, can you swing? No. You can't swing? I can. No, I can learn. Uh, if it would be a written score... I probably could imitate it quite well that it would be convincing. Hmm. Someone told me a joke. Do you, do you like jokes at all? Please. Okay. Yes, please tell me. How do you tell the children of a trombone player at a playground? You look so? for the ones that don't know how to use the slide and can't swing. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I get it. All right. We're running up on, on our time here, and I want to be respectful of your time as well as people listening here. But I want to... Uh, we have talked about you as a young person, a young player, and and we've talked a little bit about you as who you are now, um, early 40s. And I just want to ask, what is different about Sergei Nakaryakov uh, today, here in 2020, that was different, say, let's just say 1995, 
25 years ago. What, what's different? How do, what did you value in music as a musician back then? What do you value now? How has those changed over time? Well, I definitely know more music. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely know more about life. Um, I definitely get a lot more nervous on stage. I definitely feel the music differently. There I have to say that there is so much more to, to discover. And also there are, I have regrets that back then I didn't know some of um, the musicians and uh, some of the recordings that I know today, because back then it would have helped me to advance musically more. But I feel so far very lucky that life brought me where I am. This would be very honest to say. Uh, by the way, I would like to go back to the practice question. Oh, please, please, absolutely. Uh, there is one thing that I forgot to say about practicing. Soft and slow. Soft and slow. Is the key. That's the key. That's how you miss zero notes as you just play everything slowly. Oh, I miss notes still, but that definitely helps to improve it. Soft and slow. And centered. No compromise. No compromise. Yeah. In practicing, definitely no compromise. In quality, no compromise. That's, that should be the n- name of your next album. No compromise. Uh, it would be difficult to find the repertoire for that. Well, uh, when, it, <laughs> when it happens, you just give me the credit. Well, that is a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics. Telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Are you a true listener? Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to learn how you can be notified each time a new episode is published. And if you really like what you hear on this podcast, the best way to support me and the show is to subscribe to my daily email newsletter, where I share what I learn and observe in life in an infotaining way. Many folks have told me they enjoy the emails, and I think you will too. Again, the best way to subscribe to the email newsletter is to visit trumpetdynamics.com. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we'll be in your earballs soon. Music